Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. And we ask that as we look into the Psalms, we ask you to make your word manifest in our lives and in, in especially your word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Reveal to us your great love for us in him, we ask today. And give us strength for the journey that you've put in front of us. So we ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so if you've been, I see many familiar faces, and if you've been tracking with this class, and it's going to keep going on, I still have, I still have two more sessions, so praise, praise God, that's good. And um, for right now, I've, there are 14 different psalms within the Psalter that refer to specific events or episodes or eras in the life of King David in their very title. And so that's what I've been doing in, the, um, in this class, is looking at those some of those 14 psalms, we haven't done all of them, we're not going to get to all of them, and I've omitted the most famous one. Does anybody know what the most famous psalm is that refers to an event in the life of David? It's famous because we sing it every, we actually chant it, the choir chants it, I think on Good Friday, or it's either on Good Friday or Ash Wednesday, and one of you might have to correct me. That's, you're right, that's, that's um, actually Good Friday. And that one is not, but then there's another one, it's Psalm 51, that we sing on Ash Wednesday as we remember our own sins and lament our own sins. And Psalm 51 is that beautiful psalm, of, and it's specifically of David. It says in the title that it refers specifically to the event in David's life that's so famous to us. We very often think of two events in David's life. Think of the event before he was king, you know, where he killed Goliath. And then there's that other event within his reign while he was king when he fell into sin very publicly and very drastically when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then went to even um, kill, the, um, kill the, um, the husband of Bathsheba Uriah. by Uriah, that's right, by sending him right to the front lines. So um, we have those as, um, that's, that's a prime, those are both prime, that's a prime example of Psalm 51 of um, the most famous psalm that's specifically associated with an event in Jesus' life, in David's life, excuse me, I'm getting a little off my game. Um, but so one of the things we, we know about David is that David himself is called at the end of his life, in 2 Samuel um, chapter 23, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. So we don't know for sure how many of the psalms that say they're of David were actually written by David, because some might be in the style of David, some might be um, in the um, commissioned by David. Someone else wrote it, but he said, hey, can you write this to commemorate this event? Um, but we do know that some of them were indeed written by David, that he was not just a musician. We know he was a musician. He, was, um, a, he um, played, remember, so that King Saul would calm down when he, was, um, when he was oppressed by an evil spirit. David came into the court and played for him, and it soothed him. So King David is a musician, he was a psalmist in that he wrote psalms himself, and then thirdly, he was one of those people who made, um, we think of, when we think of the cults of Israel, when I say cults, I mean all of the trappings surrounding the worship of Yahweh, worship surrounding the Ark of the Covenant, where 
the Lord's presence was made manifest on earth to the Israelites and to the people of Israel. And all of the code surrounding how do you worship God, what do you do to sing his praises? Well, first of all, there's that singing and that musical aspect, but that didn't come about until later. First of all, they set in place the sacrificial system, and that happened under Moses. And we see that in the Pentateuch. We see God giving to Moses the rules and the regulations for the people of Israel about how to worship God in the right way in his sanctuary. And so um, that's under Moses, but what we don't realize very often, we very often will realize that when we read scripture, what we might not realize is that under King David, that was when during his reign, he was the one to codify and set down specific rules about what kind of music was used in worshiping Yahweh in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so he was the one who would say, well, this is what we're going to sing on this particular feast, and this is how it's going to be sung, and these are the people who can sing it, and they're going to lead worship in this way. And so a lot of the Psalms really are um, attributed to David for that reason, because he was so great at codifying and organizing how the musical worship would be done surrounding the Ark of the of the covenant. So um, so what we see here, well, what is the specific event? I'm going to come back. If you're looking at your outline, um, you'll see that we're looking at <coughs> Psalm 60 today. And I've just talked about the sweet psalmist of Israel. I'm going to talk about King David going marauding after I talk about what kind of psalm this is. So skip down a little bit. And for those of you who were here last week, last week we looked at Psalm 30. And Psalm 30 is that famous psalm about weeping, um, the Lord turning the psalmist's weeping into dancing, his mourning into joy, and that sense of overnight, the Lord transforming his circumstances. What I said was that um, the psalmist in that one, and we, I do think the psalmist is David, but we just say, the <clears throat> let me, do, I'll keep saying the psalmist. He there in Psalm 30, he found himself um, on one side of trouble. And there are different psalms that are written for different purposes. And um, it sort of depends on the circumstances of the person who is crying out to the Lord. And that's another thing about psalms. Psalms are not just songs used in worship, but they're prayers as well. And I think about that when I think about even just some of those wonderful hymns that we just sang or that you're going to sing if you're going to the 11 o'clock. And those hymns are like prayers. And I sometimes think about singing that if you um, sing, you pray a prayer twice. And so we have this wonderful music where we can um, pray our <coughs> prayers and sing our prayers, and they really get in there when they're lyrical. I don't know about you, but I actually, oddly enough, you'll scroll down and you can see, I'm going to get back to it, but I've had a mighty fortress is our God in my head all week, oddly enough. So what joy I had this morning when I got to sing it in there. And there's something about the song. It gets in our head and it gets into our bloodstream. So um, the Psalms are songs and prayers to God, crying out to God. And as we as we pray them and say them and sing them, we find ourselves put into the place of the psalmist. We allow ourselves to experience a lot of the emotions that he's experiencing when he writes the psalms. And that's one of the beautiful things about the psalms. I don't know if you've read them very much, but they are really unedited. There isn't this sense in which the psalmist says, oh, I can't say that to God. Oh, I, I don't know if he can handle how mad I am right now at him or I'm very upset, I'm really sad, I don't think God can handle it, I'm going to sh hide hide it from him. Now the psalmist 
just lets it all hang out and he just pours out his heart to the Lord. And so as we read the Psalms and as we sing the Psalms, we gain that benefit of getting to pour our hearts out to God unedited. He knows what's going on in our lives. He knows how we feel about what's going on in our lives, whether we feel joyful about it or angry or sad. And um, so there's no sense in hiding it from him. And as we say the Psalms with the psalmist, there's something about some of those negative emotions that just gets it out of us, gets it out there. And that can be a cathartic and a wonderful thing. Um, So uh, going back to what kind of psalm is this? Well, last week, most of the psalms of deliverance talk about trouble, some kind of trouble that the psalmist finds himself in. And, of course, that relates to us because each one of us um, knows trouble on some, some level. Um, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. And that for each one of us, there is trouble, whether it's some kind of sorrow or suffering that is happening right now or is in the past and still afflicts us on some level that we remember. Um, there is a trouble there that each one of us has experienced or might be experiencing right now, even if no one else knows it. And the Lord knows it. The Lord sees and knows all that we are going through. And so for each one of us, the Psalms can help us deal with the trouble in our own lives. So there is the psalmist. And there are two different kinds of psalms that we've been dealing with in this class. One type is a psalm of thanksgiving, and that's like what we looked at last week. And the other one is like what we're going to look at this week, and that's Psalm 60, a psalm of lament. And so you could say that a psalm of lament finds the psalmist If trouble's right here, the psalm of lament occurs on this side of trouble when there's no way through it yet, when the psalmist is in the midst of trouble, when trouble is all around him and he cannot see his way out of it. He's right there in the midst of trouble. And then a psalm of thanksgiving is on the other side of trouble after the Lord has delivered the psalmist. And he looks back and he says, King David looks back and he says, I was in trouble. You came and rescued me. I'm going to sing your praises and give thanks to you, Lord God. So there's that sense in which thanksgiving is on this side of trouble and lament is on the other side of trouble. Thanksgiving's all great psalms, like Psalm 30 is really good because it helps us remember the hope that we have even when we find ourselves still on this side of trouble up to our eyeballs in it, not knowing when the Lord will deliver us or how he will deliver us or why he will deliver us. So Psalm 60 is a lament And it also, unlike the psalm from last week, the psalm from last week had an I. The the speaker, it was the psalmist alone who was individually telling a testimony about what the Lord had done and then calling to the rest of the congregation and saying, the Lord did this for me. I called out to him, come, praise him with me. And here now with Psalm 60, instead of it being I did this, this psalm even begins with us. It's talking about it starts in a corporate place, and it is a corporate lament in, time, in a time, and the title of the psalm is going to tell us a little bit more about this time, was a time of national trouble for the people of Israel. So we're going to look at just what kind of national trouble that was. Um, so if you want to turn your page over, um, and I actually, I'm sorry if I didn't make enough handouts, and I'm going to poach one right here. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I didn't give myself the benefit of having it on my paper, so excuse me. Well, um, let's just, I'm just going to read the title to you. To the choir master, according to Shushan Eduth, a miktam of David. Those are all um, liturgical terms, we think, about what to sing and when to sing it and how to sing it. 
um, and why for instruction. And what does this psalm commemorate? When David strove with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So this is one of those instances, remember this is one of those 14 psalms where there's a little bit more information about an episode in the life of King David um, that gives us um, information about what was going on that brought about the writing of this psalm and that informs us about the kind of cry within the psalm itself. So um, what we can tell, so far as we can tell, there isn't, as with many of these titles, it's unfortunate because there isn't one direct correlation where we can say, aha, that's it, with certainty. But most scholars think that this title refers to a time in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And I'm I'm probably not going to read it for you, um, but you can go home and read it if you'd like. I'm just going to tell you the background in the story rather than reading 2 Samuel 8. But do you see, I've jumped back up to here. So look at King David goes marauding. So what has happened is that King David, I don't know, we've done so far, we've done a lot with King David before he was made king, before his, um, before he was sat on the throne, because he was anointed as king. And then in 1 Samuel, we have 17 chapters between the time when King Saul, um, the, the time when King David was anointed as king, and King Saul finally passed away. Um, and so there was this great tension between this overlapping reign of King Saul and King David. And there was a lot of conflict and strife, and King Saul tried ten times to kill King David. And King David was always on the run back and forth. And that was fodder for a lot of psalms when he was running for his life so many different times. And so here now we find him. He, has, he is now king. He has been enthroned, and things are going really well. We looked last week at Psalm 30 when the Ark of the Covenant was brought from outside Jerusalem right up into the city of David. And King David um, worshipped while it was in, pro- in progress, while it was um, making its way into the city of David. King David was dancing wildly. And remember, his wife, Michal, saw him and said, um, how undignified was he? that he would dance like that before the Lord. And he um, says famously, I will become even more undignified than this. And you see his heart for worship, that he loves the Lord so much that he doesn't care about status. He doesn't care about who sees him on his knees before the Lord metaphorically, although there it was dancing wildly. He was dancing wildly before the Lord, and she was ashamed for him. And he said, um, you should be ashamed, but not for me. Um, So King David is all about worshiping the Lord, and he is also, um, one of the things that happens is that David would like to build a house for the Lord. Now that he's settled, now that he's no longer on the run, he knows that the Ark of the Covenant has been going around in a tabernacle, in a tent, uh, a temporary dwelling, and he says, well, now I have this great house. I have a palace. Lord, let me build for you a house. And the Lord says in 2 Samuel 7, no, I'm I'm not going to let you build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And your heir will sit on the throne forever. So we're going to look at that in two weeks when we talk about the Messiah, great David's greater son, as we sang today. But today, David is enthroned. He's secure. He has a comfortable house. And now he's starting to act like a real king. And he's going out and he's conquering the people around him. He's continuing to build up the kingdom of Israel and and Judah. And he goes, what has happened is that he has gone marauding. His enemy, his neighbor to the north in Aram, 
north of Damascus, has gone over to protect his holdings by the river Euphrates, and he left his rear flank exposed. So David, being the man of war that he is, and later on, again, it says that the Lord would not let him build his house because David was a man of violence and a man of war. He needed to wait until his son Solomon, as a man of peace, could build the house of the Lord. David is a man of war. He goes up kind of viciously. And that's why I'm not reading chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, because it's kind of vicious. You can go back and read it, and you might have a lot of questions, and then you can ask me about it, but I'm, I'm unfortunately not going to deal with it in this class today. David goes up, and he attacks the rear flank of this king, Hadadezer, and his name is Hadadezer, and he's of Zobah. And that, if you turn over, Zobah is one of those names in the title. Aram is the land to the north, generally, and Zobah is the city that Hadadezer is the king of. And Naharim doesn't have any um, reference in scripture that we know of that David, but he probably strove there as well on his way to Zobah. So he, he wins. He wins mightily in Zobah, and he is rewarded um, with um, in this marauding effort, and then by victory. The Lord gives him victory, and while, we think that while he's up there in the north, then what happens is that down um, in the south, down surrounding Jerusalem, those longtime enemies of Israel um, come in, and specifically Edom. Edom, they're the descendants of Esau which is always important to remember. Everything in the Middle East, even today, all of the fighting, it's between brothers. That is why it's so painful. It's because ethnically, and when you go back in the families, the families are so closely tied together. When you look back far enough, well, that could be said all over, but there especially. And that's some, I think of that as one reason why the animosity is so great between peoples. So there, Edom, the descendants of Esau go and attack the descendants of Esau's brother Jacob while David's flank is exposed. So the king up there, the irony, the king up there exposed his own flank and David took advantage of it and then his flank was exposed down in Jerusalem and Edom came in to attack. And we think that they had some kind of victory and you'll see that when we read this psalm because there's um, talk of a victory and talk (coughs) of defeat on the part of Israel and that is what causes that is the hardship the trouble with a capital T that causes the people of Israel in this psalm to cry out to the Lord for deliverance so let's read the psalm now I know we we don't have much time left but we're going to read the psalm and then I'm going to talk about um, a few quick points from the psalm so what's going to happen I'm if you turn over I'll read the odd verse and you read the even verses Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for ours. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up the hammer for those who fear you, that they may flee that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand, and answer us. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. Over Lucia, I shall be Who will bring me to the fortified city? 
who will lead me to Edom. Have you not rejected us, O God? Do you not go forth, O God, with our arms? O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall be valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Um, so do you hear that corporate we in there? The whole people are crying out in worship to the Lord for deliverance. Um, There are a couple different points I'd like to point out as we go through this psalm. The first four verses, and then again we see it in verse 10, we see this cry of protest. And the cry says, oh God, you have rejected us. What What are you doing? What is going on as they experience trouble? You have been angry. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. There is the sense in which this trouble that Israel finds itself in is described in military terms. You've broken our defenses. They had probably experienced some kind of military defeat. Um, And then again in verse 10, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. There is this sense, and you see this, if you're reading the Bible in a Year blog, you'll see that we're coming up on um, the end of Deuteronomy and the entrance into the Promised Land of the people of Israel, starting in Joshua. And as the people of Israel enter into the Promised Land, there is this very difficult um, theological thing to deal with, which is essentially that the Lord has promised them this land, and he says, go take it. Take it in battle, and take it completely. And don't let there be anyone who doesn't believe in me in the land anymore. And that's hard for us to say because it seems as though the Lord is advocating for ethnic cleansing, but he's not. Um, And there's a great article in the beginning of the ESV um, study Bible on Joshua. I commend it to you. I won't cover all its points. But essentially, the commands that God gave to the people of Israel is for a specific time and because of their chosenness as his instrument. And during that time, for that point in time, Israel, the people of Israel, was devoted to the Lord. As we see by the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, he had brought them out of, out of Egypt, called them his own, given them his law, and by obeying the law, they were meant to show forth God's character to the world in all of his holiness. What does holiness look like? Well, look to the law. That is what God's holiness looks like. And so they were meant to live out this holiness before the people around them in all those nations so that they would see and know that the Lord is God and that no other God that calls itself a God is worth worshiping. Um, And so that was the witness that the people of Israel was meant to have in the promised land. And as we know, they didn't fulfill it. Um, And that promise was taken, that, that in that role as being an instrument of God's judgment and his and even his ent- the entrance for others into worship of the one true God that was taken away from them um, but for a specific time they were used by God to bring judgment on the surrounding people around them who had worshiped false idols for years and they were given an opportunity to worship Yahweh and that wasn't happening and so there was the danger that, that if Israel was not victorious in battle then Israel would fall prey to idolatry, that they would succumb to worshiping the gods of these peoples around them. And we know that that's actually what ended up happening centuries after the entrance into the promised land. But there David is, long after the entrance into the promised land, and yet these other people in these other nations still exist. And there was this (coughs) sense in battle that when Israel went out into battle, um, they would go only when the Lord said go. And they would go and do only what the Lord said to go and do. 
And so when the Lord did not grant them victory, there was this sense because they didn't win, they didn't, um, then there was this sense of, well, did they really seek the Lord? And they went back and they said, no, we didn't. We kind of just wanted to do this ourselves. And wherever Israel was selfish in their own exploits in going out, then um, the Lord would not cause them to prosper. And so we wonder here, if there's been a military defeat, they're wondering, uh-oh, we did something wrong. What have we done wrong? And they're coming back and they're repenting. So there is this protest. They protest to the Lord and they say, we are your own. And they remind the Lord of um, the special relationship that they have with him as his, as his chosen people. Um, and so this, uh, they cry out and their plea in verse 5 and verse 11 is specifically that the Lord would grant military success to them. And the basis for their plea is their special and unique relationship with the Lord. And it says in verse 5 we, um, that they are the Lord's beloved ones, your beloved ones. And that is a strong term of relationship a strong term of intimacy, love, covenanted love that's used to describe the Lord's special relationship with Israel for this time. And they beg God based on their belovedness. Um, they say beauty is in the, high, in the eye of the beholder. I think, too, love is in the eye of the beholder. Real love is in the eye of the beholder and not in the object that's beloved. Their belovedness as the people of Israel, as the chosen ones of God, is not in anything they've done, but it is in God's own um, character, in the character of his steadfast love and the mercy that he has for them when he brings them out of slavery in Egypt. He loves them, and that is true for us as well, You know that we as the newly constituted people of God, uh, the new people of God surrounding faith in Jesus Christ, we're beloved of God, not because of any um, loveliness of our own, but because of the love that resides within God himself and the love that he has for us. And so they beg and they plead based on this. And they say, we are your beloved ones. We are your people, in verse 3. We are those who fear you, in verse 4, which suggests we are the ones who you've given your law to, that we might fear you, that we might honor you, that we might obey you, and show forth your glory in the world, the glory of your holiness. So their plea is, oh, restore us. And then they, um, there's this strange interjection in verses 6 through 9. Um, and there we have a direct word from God, a direct word going back to the promises that he gave them, the promise that the land would be theirs and that he would um, conquer the nations around them. He says, God has spoken in his holiness, and now we have a quote from God. It's so interesting to have this in the Psalms. We don't always have, thus says the Lord, in the Psalms. So here what we find is that they're basing their plea in their um successive assurance of salvation and deliverance upon God's spoken word. Um, and so God's word and his promise are remembered in verses 6 through 9. God spoke and promised that, um, that they would have that land. And he also um, talks not only, it's interesting, that Gilead, Manasseh, Sukkoth, Shechem, um, Ephraim and Judah, those are all places in the promised land and they're places that were given to Israel very early on in their entrance into the promised land at the very beginning of <coughs> Joshua and in, in, in Deuteronomy as well. Those are some of the earliest places given to the people of, of Israel. And so there's this sense of chosenness 
Um, and then, um, so they're given these honored parts in the Lord's um, service. When you say, and when he says, Ephraim is my helmet and Judah is my scepter. Those are honored places, honored aspects of service, defense, military defense and military um, assertion in the helmet and in the scepter, that sense of ruling and belonging close to the Lord. And then in judgment, the Lord speaks about these surrounding nations that don't worship him, that have rejected him. He says, Moab is my wash basin. Almost like a wash basin, and this is, I can't say the word though, wash basin, wash basin, <laughs> say it 10 times fast, wash basin, and the word itself specifically denotes wash basin for feet. And so the ladies, especially from my Bible study on Friday, we've been talking a lot about feet. So when he says, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, that is a sign of displeasure. And it's actually an insult. I don't know if you remember in the news recently, not so recently, well, it happened again in February, this last February, but it, we remember it because it happened five years ago to one of our presidents, President Bush, when he was over in the Middle East. Do you remember what happened? Well, of course, she, Iran is, is very, it's just a very big insult in the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. In February, it was the Iranian president who had a shoe thrown at him as a sign of displeasure. And um, earlier, when George W. Bush was there in 2008, I believe it was an Iraqi um, journalist, and during, during a press conference, took off not just one shoe and threw it at him, but both shoes. And so because the feet, and we've been talking about this, if you're in a land where there's no um, plumbing or and there's lots of animals and there's no pavement, um, and you're wearing sandals, the, the ground is disgusting, and your feet are disgusting. And so feet were just considered the lowliest, dirtiest part of the body, the part that um, no one else should have to care for. So um, even Hebrew slaves were not allowed to wash the feet of their masters because it was too lowly for someone from the chosen people of God to have to do this lowliest task. So when God is saying this about Moab and Edom and Philistia, he is talking about his displeasure. He is displeased with them because of their unfaithfulness, their, um, their unwillingness to um, worship Yahweh. So this word of God is a word of mercy for Israel and judgment for those who don't worship God. You see that in verses 6 through 9. And so the grounding of Israel's hope, the grounding of the psalmist's hope and the corporate people of God as they look to the future in the midst of the trouble that they still find themselves in, this word and this promise of God make, gives them hope looking forward to the future. And God's promise, again, rests on the ancient promises that God made to Abraham when he said that the Lord would give to his offspring all of the promised land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of, Euph of Euphrates. So there's the sense in which this ancient promise of God is being remembered right here in the middle of this psalm. And it is the remembering of this promise and the remembering, the repeating of the psalmist and the people of Israel's belovedness in the eye of the Lord that then brings about faith and hope in the midst, still in the midst of trouble. And that's where we get verse 12 at the very end. There's again this cry for help. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. In other words, if you don't help us, we're in deep trouble because we can't do anything to save ourselves. 
And um, then, the, then there is this vote of confidence in verse 12. Again, remembering the promises of God that are in his word, looking to their own beloved, belovedness in his sight, and this, this, this beautiful verse uh, surrounding which many songs of our own contemporary songs have been written. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So what do we say with that? I'm going to just wrap it up right now, and then we can um, ask questions. But what is it that, that, what does this have to do with us? How many of us would say that we have foes, human foes? We might, we might have some human foes, I know. Well, especially if you're... <laughs> Didn't want to say it out loud on the tape, but but there you do get a sense of that opposition, especially in the courtroom. Um, but there is the sense in which you know the folks that we're talking about here. This is mortal danger that the people of Israel are in. Their their mortal danger is very real. Just as King David's was before he was king, Saul was throwing spears at him left and right, trying to kill him every chance he got. And there we might not have people chasing us down to kill us. Um, I sure hope not, in fact. But um, the trouble that we find ourselves in um, all takes its root from what, as Martin Luther called, our ancient foe. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Who is our ancient foe but the evil one, the <coughs> devil, the Satan who even caused sin to enter the world, had the idea that wouldn't it be great to tempt these brand-new, um, shiny human beings um, those innocent ones in the Garden of Eden to tempt Eve and Adam to sin, to fall into sin. And so it's the lies of the devil in the Garden of Eden that bring about sin. And then through sin, suffering, trial, sickness, death, trouble with a capital T. And so it could be said that all of our trouble, have you ever um, found yourself in the midst of trouble and it feels like you're beating your head against the wall and there is no way out? Well, the only way is through the Lord. When there seem to be no avenues open available to us, the only way is through prayer. And sometimes it takes having all other avenues cut off for us to turn upwards and look to the only avenue that's really worth having, the only one that we really need to have, and that is that direct line to God in prayer. And so for us, as we find ourselves in the midst of trouble, whatever our trouble is today, our our foe is really that ancient foe. And the way to combat that ancient foe is through prayer, through um, protesting and saying to God, this is not the way it's supposed to be, is it? He knows it's not the way it's supposed to be, and one day he will make it right. The question is, will it be today or at the end of our lives? We don't know, and Joe touched on that a little bit in his sermon. Will we have salvation now from what's surrounding us, this trouble, or at the end? Well, one thing is sure, and we go to the Lord's word and his promises to us to remind ourselves of what God has for us. Well, God has, well, first of all, going back to that ancient foe in the garden, um, there is that um, curse that's put upon the serpent that the Lord says to the serpent in Genesis 3:15, that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. The offspring of Eve shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet, his heel. And that makes me think, um, again, we, we understand that prophecy, that curse upon the evil one, to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, because Satan's 
reign is coming to an end. The death knell for him is as though he's already been killed, like his head is cut off, and he's just thrashing around still now. And what we see and experience, the evil and suffering we experience, the sin that still exists within us, are those final thrashings. And sometimes they can get really bad. But those final thrashings of the devil are no feat for our God because he has already conquered through Jesus Christ. And so we return to his promise. And the promise that we have is the promise through Jesus Christ. And so I have for you this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And here Paul is talking about his word to the Corinthians. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it was through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God, all the promises of good things to those who wait for him, to those who put their trust in him, for those who believe in Jesus, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ because it's through him that all that we've done, all of the results that we've been complicit in, all of the evil that we've even done in our own hearts, evil that's pernicious and not even obvious, All of that is forgiven through Jesus Christ. And so anything that would come against us because of that sin will have no lasting eternal effect. We might certainly feel the effect in this life, but we know that God's final word is yes at the end of all time. And our salvation eternally is certain and sure. And so even in the midst of the trouble today, we might not get the yes that we want right now, But we know that eternally God's word to us is yes in Jesus Christ, for all his promises are fulfilled in him. And so then we, like the psalmist and the corporate people of Israel, we too can go into action, go out to face our foes, go into battle metaphorically against whatever it is that comes against us every day, knowing that it is not we who fight, but it is God through Jesus Christ who fights on our behalf. And so for that, we can say thanks be to God. Let's pray, and you can ask me some questions if you want. So, Lord Jesus, we lift up to you whatever trouble it is that we might find ourselves in, even today, um, or even no trouble. It might be trouble that someone else we love is in, and we might cry out on their behalf. But, Lord, we turn to you because you are merciful, you are gracious and good, and your word and your promises are sure and steadfast. And so we put our trust in you because we know that through Jesus Christ, you are for us. You are not against us. Your no to us has turned into a yes. And so we look forward to all that you have for us in this life and especially in the next. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.